This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Marlos Machado is a research scientist at DeepMind and an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta. He holds a PhD from the University of Alberta and a Master's in Science and Bachelor of Science from UFMG in Brazil. Thanks so much for joining us, Marlos. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. So how do you describe uh, your, your area of interest? I am generally interested in artificial intelligence, which is quite broad, but I am interested in, in these different aspects of, of intelligence, uh, not necessarily married to one approach. Uh, I've been special. I, I, I am fascinated by the problem of decision-making, and specifically sequential decision-making when, when actions have delayed consequences. So in the past couple of years, I, I've been specializing more and more in reinforcement learning, but I am interested in all things related to that, related to representation learning, abstractions, and things like that, which is which is pretty broad, let's, let's put it this way. So the journey of your career has included uh, you know, University of Alberta, Google Brain, and now DeepMind. Can you tell us like how your perspective and maybe your approach to research has evolved between these different chapters uh, of your career? I, I did my PhD at, at University of Alberta, and obviously you your approach to research changes a lot during your PhD. Uh, when you start, you're just learning. And I think that, I don't even know if it's fair to say that something changed from, from when I left U of A, but I, I think that it's it definitely, I think that U of A shaped a lot of how I see research, how the, the a big concern for the fundamentals for being uh, sound for being precise at what you're what you're saying and trying to actually understand the phenomena not not trying to get too much into uh, maybe getting people excited about science but to actually be a scientist and ask the question uh, what is the phenomenon we are observing uh, what is the hypothesis and, and how can we do good science about that when I left U of A and I went to Google Brain one thing that I was very excited about was this ability to scale the research. As much as I, I was doing what, what people call deep RL uh, at U of A, it was always a struggle with a couple of dozen of dozen GPUs to do research. When, when I went to Google Brain, then I definitely had access to more resources and I, I felt I could explore that a little bit more, ask different questions or be more careful about some of the questions that I, I, I was going to ask about that. And there is also this perspective that Obviously, you start to be exposed to much more once you are not a grad student, because as a grad student, you are fundamentally concerned about your thesis, right? So as much as you uh, you explore other areas and you're talking to people, you still eventually have to write a PhD thesis and do the research. And uh, at Brain, I was also happy that I could explore more and diversify my interests uh, or my research. And DeepMind, I I joined DeepMind uh, a month or two ago. So... It's hard to say that something changed about my research, but one thing that I'm excited about DeepMind is the amount of people around me that have reinforcement learning as their main research interest. And I'm already benefiting a lot from having these different perspectives and having very deep and meaningful discussions about reinforcement learning problems that I care about. Uh, And I'm very excited to to what's going to come out of that. Awesome. So um, could you say that, or would you say that the, the conception of like what reinforcement learning is and and what it's about and the important aspects of it, these fundamental things, do you think the conception of these things differs much between um, these institutions or, do, or, are they, or are they all looking at it in a similar way? I find it hard to, to characterize that because I don't think that there is a mandate from any institution of what reinforcement learning is. Uh, and I've been very lucky uh, that all these institutions that I've been part of, they are very broad. 
and they have several researchers and several groups uh, doing research on reinforcement learning. Uh, so it's hard for me to characterize, oh, this is how Google Brain or DeepMind sees reinforcement learning. Uh, I think that there are definitely differences that I could perceive. And, and again, this is a, just a very personal note. Uh, maybe I'm even uh, quoting too much the, the response, but it's obviously this is a personal perspective. And this mainly praying and deep mind, they are such a wide institution that I'm grossly mischaracterizing anything that I say, because I'm sure that there is a group that I don't, I'm not aware of that is doing things differently. But one distinction that I see is that at U of A, um, there was always this very big discussion about, yes, how can we, we come up with intelligent agents? Uh, but the focus has never been so much in what we would call deep RL. Uh, I did the deep RL. Uh, I, I wrote a couple of papers uh, about deep reinforcement learning when, when I was in my PhD. But U of A is not like a lot of the professors and a lot of the research groups there, they are not necessarily so excited about the deep reinforcement learning research per se. They are very interested in the fundamentals of RL. And then for that, you, you if you need a function approximation, uh, uh, you can just do linear function approximation and things like that. So, uh, because they really want to control as much as you can to isolate everything and explain one process. And then once you, once, and then at Brain, uh, Brain and DeepMind, uh, I think that they have they share a lot of similarities. I, I would say that one of the and I guess the one of the big differences at Brain is that the groups are often uh, localized. So like there is the Montreal group, and then it has its own flavor of research, the Mountain View group. And as much as these different groups talk, you can you can see even in the publications that these groups tend to publish together. Different groups have different approaches, but I uh, but I think that one of the things at Brain is that Brain has a big focus on more than reinforcement learning, right? Brain reinforcement from from a, a cartoonish perspective, as much as there are amazing researchers at Brain that do the reinforcement learning, and there are a lot of them. The majority of the research at Brain still seems to me that it's focused on deep learning, while I guess a deep mind reinforcement learning it's it's at the center, or at least for from my perspective, feels at the center of of this. So it's not so much about uh, how you see the 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 problem the problem formulation but it's maybe a, a matter of focus and this ends up shaping some of the things that uh, the discussions that you have but in all these three places i always had absolute freedom to do whatever i want so in a sense it's my perspective of reinforcement learning and not anything imposed to me by anyone else that was super interesting and it, it's great to chat with you you being in this unique position to to be able to comment on the different perspectives of these of these world-leading institutions so we we are going to talk about a few of your papers and starting with Revisiting the, the ALE. So this is a first author paper of yours, Revisiting the Arcade Learning Environment, Evaluation Protocols, and Open Problems for General Agents. And that was Machado uh, 2018. Yep. Before this paper came out, can you help us understand like what were the issues with comparing results across studies in Atari? And and then and then how did you address them here? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, that that's an interesting paper because it it was in the works for a very long time. The original arcade learning environment paper came out in 2013 uh, from Mike Bowling's group at UAV with Mark Belmer as the first author. Uh, and and then people started to get excited, slowly get excited about it, uh, until, of course, uh, the DeepRL uh, explosion that got everyone's attention and, and Atari was the, the main benchmark that people used. And I think that there was that first phase that people were just getting used to the framework and getting used to, to the problems and the questions that you could ask and what were the limits of computation that we could explore. And from some and and 
because people are exploring from so many perspectives, sometimes it felt that they were not making apples to apples comparisons. And I am very, very annoying about that. Like those who work with me know that I, I, I get very upset with this type of comparisons. And it always bugged me. And and to give a a, a concrete example, um, the when when the 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 original Atari paper came out, it was about the number of they were using episodes as a as a metric. So the number of episodes in the environment to measure the agent. So basically, the agent gets to interact with the environment for I don't know a thousand episodes. I don't remember what the number was, and that's you're going to report the performance at the end. But the the tricky thing here is that if you have an agent that it gets that it that it learns well and and starts to learn a good policy either by chance or or, or because it's a better agent or early on, you're going to live longer, right? And then the episodes become much longer. If your episodes are much longer, then the agent is actually seeing much more data than it was before, uh, because this is a, a thing that it's evolving. When the the the, the VQN paper came out, I think that they did the, a more appropriate thing, which is say that, no, we are going to count the number of frames, for example, of this uh, uh, that the agent has seen, the number of interactions with the environment. But because everyone else was doing uh, episodes before, well, now you start to have comparisons between number of frames and number of episodes, and then you are not even comparing the same number of interactions with the environment. Uh, and you could see this in a couple of papers. Uh, there are other things like, oh, is the agent allowed to know when it dies, or does the agent like when it loses a life, or does the agent only knows when all the li- lives are lost, and then the agent gets to get gets to 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 start the game again, and and you can keep adding up those things. Like in the paper, we we have a whole list of of those, but you can see that these small details matter. They matter a lot. Sometimes, of course, if you're talking about the number of interactions with the environment, the sample efficiency of your algorithm, it's, it's a, a major thing. But even like, do you get to know the number of lives or do you don't? Uh, how, how do you deal with that? Uh, is this, do you, do, another thing, for example, do you get to know the number of actions that your agent has access to? Because for example, if you're playing a Pong, uh, you only go up and down, right? Like you don't have that many actions. So you have three actions, up, down, and stay. Um, while in other games you have actual 18 actions. So is the agent supposed to learn uh, that some of the actions have no effect or can we start uh, telling the agent that that they, they they are not available? And in the paper, we were very careful, iterated a lot about this to not say that, oh, this is what you should do. But in a sense, it's important that you acknowledge that you're maybe, if you are assuming that your agent knows what is the effect, the, the action set, the, the minimal action set, let's call it, the, the minimal number of actions that are effective in the environment, well, maybe the agent's not going to spend so much time trying to figure out that it should not consider those other actions. And so it's not fair to make this comparison. So when we wrote this paper, this paper actually started back in 2015 uh, when we organized a workshop at AAAI about all this research that was doing about how to do this general, uh, this research and reinforcement learning in this vast r- uh, range of domains and how we could get this this performance that it's in a sense, general purpose, what we would call. And a lot of the people, uh, like the, the the leads of the reinforcement learning community at the time, they were discussing this and they were saying, yes, we have to, to fix it. We have to to have some guidelines to, to help the whole field. And at the time, I was one of the organizers of the workshop. And then we said, yeah, let's let's write a, work, uh, uh, a paper about that. The paper took much longer to be written uh, for uh, all sorts of reasons. Uh, but at the end, I think that 
it did what it was set up to do and what a lot of the people were expecting us to do, which is to come up with at least some discussion about that and some examples of apples to apples comparisons and things that you would expect. One of the reasons that the paper took so long to be written is also because from at the moment that we start doing this, you start to realize that, oh, maybe we can do some things better. Uh, we can, I don't know, add stochasticity to the environment because it was deterministic, or we can add modes as we added, uh, which is a which vastly increases the number of, of games that you have access to. And as we kept adding these and we wanted to write a, a solid paper, this took quite some time to get out. But eventually in 2018, we published that chair. And to be fair to JR, because journals get a bad reputation, the review cycle was fairly short, so it was not that the journal was holding us back. And how was the paper received? Like, did everyone latch onto this as the definitive um, way to benchmark with Atari, or did it take some time to diffuse? Did everyone agree that this is uh, uh, the right way to do it, the protocol? I mean, I want to say that the paper was well-received. Uh, people oftentimes associate my name to that paper. Uh, the... So yeah, I think it was well-received. There is a big difference between being well-received and becoming the standard in the field, right? Like, you cannot force people to do what you want them to do. Uh, maybe you're not even suggesting the right thing. So in this context, um, I think that the, the whether the paper was, how, how much people actually decide to listen uh, varies. Uh, even recently, we had uh, some big results that we're not following. We still, people use other different protocols to do stochasticity. It depends on the version that they are using on the Atari. Uh, but I want to say that I've seen, I've, I've, I've been on the reviewing process a couple of times where I see other reviewers saying, that, oh, you're not following the, the, this paper's guidelines, and you should. So I think that there is this general consensus in the community that it's at least one good good standard to follow. And I'll take that. I think it's, it's good enough. So this paper is really how I first encountered your name. And as I told you before our interview, um, it came up uh, during my first Neuropsis 2018. And Go Explorer was a, was a big part of the DeepRL workshop. And some of the discussion after that was around you know, whether their methods um, adhere to the guidelines in, in your paper. So that, that's, yeah. that's how I came to, to know you for the first time. Yeah, it was interesting because when the paper, came, the Go Explore paper came out, I, I was, I didn't say anything, but I could say that people bringing up my paper and saying, "Oh, you are not following that," and 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 suddenly somehow our paper got, uh, I, I want to say, got also a lot of attention because of Go Explore. So I think it was good for everyone. I was, um, I, I I was I tweeted about this I, uh, yesterday or the day before. I don't remember, but. I, I finally got the chance of reading the Go Explore paper, the final version, the Nature paper, and I was very happy and impressed by how much they they actually listened and they wanted to to in a sense to write and and they they and I, and I I really congratulate the authors for like taking the feedback from the community and saying that yes, if if stochasticity is something that it's important, we are going to address that. And I was I think it was a good a good outcome and a good example of science and the community talking to each other. So can you tell us about uh, determinism in ALE and stochasticity and sticky actions? How does all that stuff work? We take a lot of things for granted nowadays, but uh, back in the day for Atari, the console predates stochasticity in a sense. So the Atari 2600 didn't have a source of stochasticity built in in the controller. The best they could do was to use the state of the RAM when the game was loading to try to come up with some notion of stochasticity. Uh, which means that most of the games, the vast majority of the games, they're deterministic. Like, the, if you execute the same sequence of actions, you're always going to have exactly the same outcome. Uh, which is fine, and we have a lot of domains that are a lot of problems in the real world that 
where this 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 is the, the the how it operates, right? But on the other hand, it feels that there is something missing, right? Because a lot of the problems that we have, they also have some inherent stochasticity. Maybe because you don't control the environment, but maybe because you don't control your own actions, like you you cannot time every microsecond of how you're going to twitch your muscles. So we felt that there was something missing, and this was the stochasticity. Um, we felt that by adding, because the original notion of the Atari, of the Atari, what's called arcade learning environment, which are the set of Atari games that we use for reinforcement learning, the uh, evaluation, the, the original idea, at least how I see it, I was not in the, in the, the first paper, was that we want our agent to basically do a single agent that we can deploy at all these different environments. And it's exactly the same algorithm. It's just going to, to run and it's going to learn how to do well. So there is no specialization per game, right? There is nothing. And this is, in a sense, what allows us to give a, have a general purpose algorithm. Because, well, if I have an algorithm that I say, hey, learn how to play tennis, and it does. And then learn how to shoot aliens, and it does. And, of course, under the same interface and so on, it's a much better algorithm than you just say, oh, this algorithm I just evaluated it to, I don't know, play tennis. Uh, so you had this general purpose approach, and it felt to us with time that the stochasticity was a big part of it because we could see or we had hypothesized that some of the papers that, that we were seeing coming out, they were in a sense implicitly exploiting the determinism. Like and and in the paper we 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 came up with the, the simplest version of that that we called the brute, which was to show that we could come up with a learning algorithm, if you will that even if we didn't look at the state at all, basically we're just going to ignore the screen. We're just going to blindly, which is what we call open loop uh, planning, we're just going to blindly learn a sequence of actions. We could sometimes do better than the state of the art algorithms at the time. Mm -hmm. And somehow to us, it felt wrong. We're like, wait, how can we have an, what we call an intelligent agent that is learning something that is not even considering what it's obser observing? Just like, and the stochasticity was a way that we could bring this uh, this discussion and at least add this extra dimension of to be considered. And our solution was the sticky actions, uh, which basically, because the, the ALE, I did a lot of the development of the the, the framework itself and the, on the back end, and it's, uh, yeah, it's it's very low level, let's put it this way. But when you look at the code for the ALE or like the Atari emulator, you don't have a source of randomness. So it was very difficult to say, oh, we are going to add randomness in the game itself because that was going to be like, oh, a, a, a lot of work. Uh, I didn't want to spend two years of my PhD doing that. So what we, we thought, well, but what would be a meaningful way of thinking about that? And then it comes to sticky actions, which was this notion that, well, even if a human is playing Atari, they, they didn't have this feeling that the game was deterministic. And the reason they didn't have it is because a human cannot time, oh, I'm going to shoot every 30 milliseconds or something like that, uh, because humans have legs and the reflex and things like that. So by what sticky actions does is that there is a probability that every time that you execute an action, it's going to take a little bit longer, maybe one or two in interactions with the environment for that action actually take effect, which is, it's trying to mimic some delay that, that humans could have mm -hmm. in, in reacting. And and that was already, like as we showed in some of the the, the results when we are trying to see how, how to break the brute, for example, and, and, and which is this notion of this deterministic algorithm that could do well, uh, we showed that, yes, even this very simple notion of stochasticity would break it because they, uh, it, it was clearly exploiting something that, at least from my perspective, it was not ideal to exploit. So it seems very realistic. You're in the 80s. You go to the arcade. Uh, it's an old machine. Someone spilled Pepsi in the controller. And this is your sticky actions. It's perfect. I love that. 
<laughs> and I love the fact that sticky now has two puns because it has two <laughs> meanings because I don't know if I want to play sticky buttons, but sure. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to uh, your work in generalization. So um, there's a couple papers here. Uh, first by first author Fairbrother, generalization and regularization in DQN from 2018. And more recently uh, by Agarwal et al., Contrasted Behavioral Similarity Embeddings for Generalization in Reinforcement Learning. That's at ICLR 21. So can you help us uh, understand in simple terms um, what's going on in, in these in these papers? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think that, so this question of generalization started to bother me in a sense uh, when I was writing the revisiting the ALEP. And how it came to be was this notion that one of the things that we added in the in the ALE was this notion of modes. So when you see, I don't know, Freeway, for example, the game that where the chicken is crossing the road, uh, everyone is very familiar with seeing talks and so on, where you have a yellow blob trying to cross the road and cars are coming by. But what people don't realize is that the developers of Atari, they, of these Atari games, they were so good that they were not satisfied in putting a single game in 2K of RAM. They wanted to put 16, 20, 32 games. And somehow they managed to do that. So in the Atari console, what you had is that you had some uh, switches and you could actually change the mode of the game. So in Freeway, for example, the chicken crossing the road, uh, you could change the time. So you could go to rush hour and then you had more cars. Uh, and and then it's a different game in a sense. It's it's, But it's not, right? Like it's the same sprites. It's the same principle of the game. It's the same idea. You go up and you avoid cars. But by flipping this switch in this new mode, you have a, a new environment, a new reinforcement learning environment. And... When I was seeing this, and even when we were proposing the, the, these modes, like introducing it as a, as a research problem, it felt that, yes, like you can call it all sorts of things, but to me, this is a, general, a problem of generalization. I want my agent to be able to learn by playing two or three games uh, of freeway that, yes, I want to go up and avoid cars. So now if there is a new pattern of cars showing up or the cars are at different speeds, ideally the agent would, be, would not suck at, at playing that game. Uh, and this first paper that you mentioned, which is a paper with uh, Jesse Fearbrother and uh, Michael Bowling, uh, was when I was working with Jesse, who was at the time an undergrad student. And I was posing this question to him, and he was like, yes, that's that's very interesting. And then we start to explore how how much the gold standard at the time, which was the QN, was in a sense overfitting to, this, to, to a single game that it was being trained. What would happen if we actually put the QN to train one of these environments and then basically just change the speed of the cars. Uh, and lo and behold, as, as by now we all know, these algorithms, they are not, uh, by, by just the, the simple definition of them, they, are, they, they have no incentive to generalize beyond the, the tasks that they're seeing. So we, we were showing this and we were showing that even if we did, if we revisited some basics of machine learning, like look at what would we do if we, what would happen if we regularized uh, this network? If we used regularization to improve generalization, we could see some benefits. Uh, and we were asking questions about, oh, but what if we, we want to reload the, the weights of the network and just train a last layer, for example, or something like that, would we still be able to leverage what it's the representation? Because arguably the sprites are the same. So the, the ability to extract rep uh, good representation should be, should be transferable. So we were exploring a lot of these questions uh, in this paper, and 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 I and and I the solutions like even if you want to call it a solution, it was more raising awareness to the problem than necessarily proposing uh, any new solutions. Uh, they they were too simple, and then life happened. I don't know, I, finishing PhD, getting a job, and so. 
but this question was always at the back of my mind. And eventually, I, I, I managed to convince Richard Agarwal, who, who was a, a resident at Google Brand at the time, that this question of generalization was an interesting one. And we worked with Pablo Castro and, and Mark Belmer on that. Uh, and eventually, I was really happy with one of the solutions. The, the solution that we came up with, with, with was this notion that, and I say we, but like Rishab should get all the credit, um, which was this notion that what if, maybe even taking a step back, we were asking the question, how can we learn a representation? Because by now, it's it seems pretty clear to all of us that the representation that we were being that we're learning were not was not generalizing. And we're asking the question, how can we train an agent to learn a representation in such a way that if it's in a different environment, a different task, but it's very similar, it's still no, it's still going to know what to do. And and then we can uh, and some folks at Microsoft Research uh, in Montreal had come up with this very simple uh, environment that I think that captures the what the like some of these notions very well, which is this this notion of all you want to do is to to have an agent learning to jump over a block. Uh, and then what you can do is that you can move the position of the block that the agent needs to jump over, like only on the x-axis. So basically, just move it right or left. Uh, but you can also put you can also put this this let's say this is a pixel task, pixel-based task. You can always put this this screen that the agent's looking on a bigger screen, and then you can just move it up and down. Uh, so now. Or like what I mean by that is that you, that you can have the floor where the agent is living and then the, you can just shift the floor up or down. So now you have two dimensions of that you can vary. You can just shift the floor up or down, but the agent is still sitting on the same floor and the agent still needs to jump over the same block. Uh, and lo and behold, it's literally the same problem. The, the, the pixels are just shifted and then the network can't, can't do it. The network is really bad at doing that. Uh, and if you if you... And if you shift the obstacle as well, the position, it's again, really bad. But there is an underlying representation here that would solve all the problems, right? Like if instead of latching to random pixels on the screen or something like that, what we were seeing is that, well, maybe the agent should be able to learn the distance between the agent and the block. Now, nothing matters anymore because this is invariant, right? That's the key word here. Now the representation is going to be invariant to all these changes. Uh, and, and I'm talking about this jumping word because it's, I think it's the, the most didactic, didactic example of this, but uh, eventually from from these discussions that we had about this, this notion of invariance, we start to ask, what could we do to, to learn representations that are invariant? And then it comes this paper, which is what we said, that, well, maybe what we should do is that we should learn in a couple of these different environments, let's put it this way, uh, how to do well, uh, the, the optimal policy. And then we should try to look back and say, wait, but if I'm acting the same uh, on these two, this two environments, uh, even though they look very different from the network's perspective, does it mean that these states are actually the same? So we don't do research. Uh, we don't. We didn't run an experiment on Super Mario Brothers, but it's it's a famous game. I like to give this example, which is just like let's say that you learn to jump over the turtle, and and that's what you need to do, right? If you go forward and now the background is completely different, but you still are only jumping over the turtle or you're avoiding an obstacle, so it's kind of the same thing, right? It's just like, oh yeah, I guess now I'm at this state that I should learn how learn how to, to execute the sequence of actions. And by doing that, you, you should learn to say, oh yeah, so I guess this doesn't matter and this doesn't matter. And what we were trying to do with this paper was this. And thus it comes to the, the title of the paper, which is this notion of, uh, behavior similarity. And we wanted, like, if the agent is behaving similarly in different uh, instantiations of the same problem, 
uh, maybe this means that the states uh, should be at least considered to be equivalent. And and we do this, and then we, the paper, I, I really like the paper because it has both theory uh, and also a lot of empirical data. And we did this in a way that eventually we were able to create a loss function that allows us to learn an embedding that captures this, this similarity. And it starts to put together, states say that, yes, if you are behaving the same in these two different ways, even though in these two different setups, even though they look very differently, maybe these things are the same. And this is one of the things that the network's trying to do to put to learn this embedding. And it does really, really well in all sorts of environments, uh, like con continuous control tasks, uh, some theoretically difficult ones, this jumping task, and so on. So it's, it's, it's really neat. So you talk about finding state embeddings with similar long-term behavior here. How do you define long-term behavior? Uh, yeah, so what we can do here is that we can think about how is the agent going to act at the current time step, right? So let's say, so if you want to just, if you want to think of very, about very short-term behavior, it's going to be one step. And basically you can say, well, so am I going to go up here and am I going up to go up uh, like in the, this other instantiation of the environment? Uh, and this would be the short behavior. And then what you do is that then you start to, to make this longer. So now you're not only looking at one action, you're looking at multiple actions in, in the future. And the way we do this is inspired by this notion of bi-simulation metric. We just look at how you how similar the policy is at the current uh, time step that you, that you are at. And then you also look at the discounted distance between the distribution of states that you're going to look in the future. Uh, so by doing that, you it's discounted. So the, the long term comes from this discounting, right? Because if we have a very, if we have a gamma equals zero, basically we're not looking in the future. And if we have gamma equals something bigger than zero, let's say 0.9, we are looking at a couple of time steps. We still concern a lot about where we are at the beginning. Uh, like, but this, there's this exponential decay, and then we are looking at this distribution of things that we're going to see in the future. And if they they match, then we're going to say, or they are, they are close enough, because of course it's not about matching exactly. Then we start to try to put these things together. Is there a relationship here between uh, this work and the idea of options? Like, uh, is, is there a close relationship? Yes and no, in the sense that we are not trying to learn this extent this sequence of actions or like this this courses of actions uh so at first no but the reason i say yes is just because i like to think about these things as trying to find different it's it's all about abstractions right and i think that op the way i think about options is that options are abstractions in the action space so given that i'm going to act how can i abstract the sequence of actions into something more meaningful. And what we're looking from this in this paper, I would say that it's more a notion of abstraction in the state space, which is given the observations, how can I I I, I abstract these states into something more, more uh, amenable and, and more useful for generalization. So they, they're definitely touching at different notions of abstraction, I would say. But yeah, but there is no notion of explicitly trying to use this extended sequence of actions uh, from this, this, this paper. And I think I saw that there was some notion of being agnostic to reward in the embeddings. Is that true? And is the policy here still trying to maximize returns? Uh, yes, it is true. We are agnostic in the sense that, as I was just describing the, the method, by no, I was not talking about rewards at any point, right? So we would just look at the different behaviors and see that, oh, if, they, if the agent is behaving different, uh, like behaving similarly at two different places, uh, maybe these this states are together. Uh, so it is reward agnostic in that context. Uh, 
But this is just one of the loss functions that we use, which is the one that they are trying to shape the representation learning process. We still have the standard DPRL formulation, if you will, where we are trying to maximize re re return. Uh, and this loss is driving the, the learning the policy as well. So we are definitely, we definitely want to maximize return. That's the goal. But we have something extra, let's say, that is just trying to nudge the representation learning process. So all other things being equal, maybe we should learn a representation that it's it's better, if you will. Cool. Okay, let's move on to to exploration. Um, you've done a lot of work in exploration. You said you focused on exploration for your PhD and had a number of papers in this area. Do you want to tell us? Um, do, you, do you want to tell us a bit about your thesis? Yeah, sure. So when I st I started my PhD back in 2013, which is literally the year that the arcade learning environment came out. So I was very excited about that that framework. And and I was asking and I was looking at those problems and I was like, what are agents actually fail to do? And even when the DPRL agents came to be, it was very it was the same question, like what what they can do. And one of the things that they couldn't do was this notion of there is a set of games that the that 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 basically these agents can't can't do well. They they couldn't do well at the time. And this was these games where basically you had it was very difficult to find a positive reward in the environment. Uh, it required a very long sequence of actions, or it required you to, or it required you the right sequence of actions because you could die before getting there. Uh, and this was this was something that was interesting to me. And maybe I, I like to make the joke that in, in the first the first term that uh, the first semester that I, I started my PhD I was taking a rich sentence uh, reinforcement learning uh, grad course, and the project that that he asked us to do was to get a Roomba and the iRobot and say you have to do you have to make it learn something so you have to co to implement a reinforcement learning algorithm in this robot, and and you have to be able to demonstrate that this robot is learning uh, that. And be creative on what you want the robot to learn. And then I, I was like, of course, I want to impress Rich Sutton, so I'm going to do something very fancy. And what I wanted to do was <laughs> I wanted to have the, the robot to learn how to dock into the charging station. And, and I tried, and I failed miserably uh, at the time. And, and I remember that at the end of the course, I was the only one to go up there and say, hey, look, I tried all these things, but I failed. And I don't have a learning a, a, a demonstration to show you. And the reason I failed was exactly because the robot would never latch for the first time if it's following a random walk. So how could I expect it to learn? And and I make the joke that I started my my PhD thesis out of spite of like, no, I have to be able to solve this problem because like it it was an embarrassing moment in my in my <laughs> in the beginning of my career. Uh, and then comes Atari and, and all those things. So I was genuinely curious about this question, like, well, I believe that we shouldn't be handcrafting rewards that are telling the agent how to do something like, oh, you should follow along this path because then we are solving the problem for the agent. But if we want to reward the agent by just doing the right thing, let's say docking to a charging station, well, how can we expect the agent to do that? And this was a very, uh, a very important question that kept bugging me for a long time. Uh, and and then the Atari games, the, this all these Atari successes start to show up and then Lo and behold, like I guess everyone has heard about Montezuma's Revenge, for example, how challenging it is. And it's just another instance of the same problem. And as you can expect, this problem starts to show up all sorts of places when you start to think about uh, reinforcement learning problems. So it seemed it was a question that picked my, my mind and I was curious about it. Uh, and eventually what I what I what I ended up proposing, like it's uh, and, and we can talk more about this this in a in a more low-level detail, but the let's say the thesis statement that I had was that 
I was proposing that at the end we should be learning representations. Uh, and these representations have, we should be able to learn these representations without relying on the reward function. Uh, meaning that if you just say that, oh, I'm going to train a deep RL agent with, I don't know, the square TD laws or some other laws that you like, and I'm going to learn the, to call the representation whatever are the weights that I learned by backprop at the, the, the beginning of the network, this is not going to cut it because if you never see a reward, you're not going to have a signal to backprop. So, but if we learn a representation that does not depend on a, on a non-zero reward, and we should use that representation to guide exploration. Meaning that if, I, if I'm in, a, in an environment, in a room, let's say, and I learn a representation about that room, uh, I'm not going to be able to learn a representation, a very good representation about a door if I rarely go to the other side. And that's actually the really big problem, right? Like it, this is exploration problem because now you have a, let's say a, a bottleneck and you have to go over it just to give an example. Uh, and the representation is, if you, depending on the representation that you learn, you're able to capture exactly that. And then what I was proposed that we should use this representation to actually guide us in the exploration process and tell the agent, oh, no, no, look, this, this, all this you mastered, but that part over there you didn't. So maybe you should try to go there. And and that's uh, and that was the general gist uh, of the the work. So in these papers, um, a number of terms come up, and I wonder if we can we can take a moment to just uh, to talk about these terms in brief. Um, for example, proto value function. Yeah. What what does that mean? Is that right? Is that, and is that a, a useful concept um, today? Yes, it is. So, or I mean, it, I, I think it is. Um, so. It it also it, it it goes exactly to the question that I was telling you about, right? Like if we learn the representation, then the representation should guide us to to to, to where we want to be. And proto value functions are one of those representations that you could learn. It predates the parallel. Uh, it predates the the DQN paper. Uh, it was introduced actually in two thousand five, and at the time it was introduced just as a way of learning a representation. And the word proto-value functions comes exactly because it comes before you learn the value function. And it was this method that says that, look, if we think about the environment as a graph, uh, we could actually try to capture the properties of that graph into a set of features. And these properties are then, you, and then the, the paper, the, the Shiridhar Mahadevan's paper, uh, Amara Majoni's paper, uh, what this paper does, what, what they do is that they, sh- they say that, look, these properties are good enough that you can actually use them as features and you learn to maximize return. So proto-value functions were this representation learning method, let's put it this way. Uh, there are some very pretty pictures uh, that uh, in the original papers, and then I, I really like them, so oftentimes you find them in my papers as well. I find them pretty, uh, which is, let's say, you you have a, a grid world, and then you try to learn this proto-value function, then you can see like what the representation looks like. and if you think about, for example, an environment with four rooms, you can see that what these proto-value functions capture are exactly the four different rooms that you that you have. These are the first features that you learn. They realize that, look, they are different. These this rooms are kind of, when you're inside the room, all these states kind of look the same, but it's very different from being outside the room. And when I was looking at them, and at the time this was a representation learning process, uh, they, and, and just to be more precise here, what proto-value functions are is, you you think about the environment as a graph. From that graph, you can compute uh, the adjacency matrix, or and from that adjacency matrix, you can compute a matrix that is called the graph Laplacian. Uh, and then the proto-value functions are the eigenvectors of that graph Laplacian. And the reason I'm saying this is because the eigenvectors they are 
they are what actually captures this dynamics of the environment or this diffusion properties of the environment if you how 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 the agent would diffuse in that environment and what what i realized that wait but wait if 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 we have a representation that if we have a representation that it's telling me that look there is one room and here is another room and we can just learn that if it's just learnable what if instead of using that as a representation i use that as a as a goal and i said well i want to actually learn an option that takes me to the room that I can identify. So out of the box, you immediately learn for options, which are like this sequence of actions that take you to the four rooms in the environment, and which allows you or allows the agent to operate at a different level of abstraction, right? So if I if I tell someone, oh, there is a million dollars hidden somewhere in your house, you are not going to go back and forth in terms of steps until you find that. Right, you're going to say, "Oh, maybe I should go to this room or to this room." You're going to think about a different level of abstraction. And what, at the time, it, this was the first paper that I wrote on this topic was about proto-value functions. At the time, what this, what we could show is that we could use this representation to actually learn the options that uh, allow us to explore much better. In a sense, better connecting the the points that were further apart in this graph, that is the environment, uh, and that's that's what we did. So as you say, the proto-value function um, and, and some of these, these concepts show up in earlier papers and we see uh, a lot of examples in grid worlds. I wonder, are these, do these notions carry over to um, higher dimensional observations? Like I guess in, if we thought about the graph of states and connectivities and, and adjacencies in, in Atari, it would be, it'd be quite a graph. Do these concepts carry over to, uh, to higher dimensional cases where the graphs are, are less, less crisp and simple? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And a lot of the research that I did in my PhD on this line of work about learning options out of that was exactly, in a sense, trying to scale those things. So the eventually, out of proto-value functions, what I noticed was that... So maybe there are two, two, two threads there. One is that from proto-value functions, what we are actually talking about is this notion of looking at the eigenvectors of the graph Laplace, which is the name of proto-value function. And by... By 2019, even 2018, I believe, a couple of papers start to come up uh, showing that how you could actually use neural networks to estimate this uh, this, Lapla- this Laplacian uh, function in with like with neural networks in a in a higher dimensional scale. So one of the papers that comes to mind, for example, is a paper that is entitled Laplacian NRL by Ifan Yu and others. At the time, they were, Ifan was an internet Google brain. And it was literally scaling these ideas and say that, look, we can use neural networks to estimate this in a much better way. And at the time, they had experiments with Mujoku, for example. So there was research being done, and there are other papers as well, uh, Spectrum Inference Networks from David Fall is another example that comes to mind, that they were trying to say that, look, we can capture these spectral properties with neural networks and learn them. So the answer is yes. Some other people did scale this up. And on a different thread, which is what I followed, uh, I was also looking at when I was trying to scale this up. What I noticed is that uh, what I noticed is that the eigenvectors of the like the the the, the eigenvector of the, the graph Laplace, they were the same as the eigenvectors of something that is called the success representation. And the success representation also had extensions to larger domains uh, known as successor features. Uh, and I was also able to leverage that to learn this this option. So there were different threads where we could uh, explore that basically allowed us to to to, to scale this up. Uh, I I don't think that the research is 
over. I think I still think that there are a lot of challenges to do. Uh, I was never happy with the results that we got in Atari, for example, but I think that it, it shows promise and our ability to scale these things up and to come up with new methods show that it's a fruitful research area. Interesting. Okay. So, but is there, is there kind of a chicken and egg um, problem here? Like, like if I just think back to linear algebra to get the, the eigenvectors for a matrix, you, you kind of need the matrix, at least some approximation of the, of the matrix, not just a little corner of it. And in, in, in RL, we starting out, we wouldn't know the, all the state transitions. So, so how do we determine the exploration strategies when we don't know the state space in advance? Um, how does that work? Yeah. So, so I think that's, that's, that's a great question. And that's, that's the, the, the question that I'm actually excited about on these methods, because you're absolutely right for a lot of these methods, like even the, the, dating back to the first one, which is this, this graph Laplace and proto-value functions, they assume knowledge of the environment. So in a sense, you know the graph and then you compute the eigenfactors. But if you don't know the graph, how can you, how can you, how can you know? And what I noticed, and this has been a big chunk of my research, is that we can have incremental, uh, we, we can have learning in incremental ways. And what I mean by that is the following. You can have an agent uh, dithering and just wandering in the environment for a while and learning a representation. This is not going to be a, a representation that captures the, the whole environment. It's just the, the place that the agent can get to. Uh, out of that, uh, you you if you look at the what you get by by learning with these methods that I can that, that I proposed, uh, you basically you have an agent that learns you can extract options out of this representation that takes you to the, what I call the boundary of your knowledge. So in a sense, you've you've dithered around uh, for for quite some time, and you realize that okay, now I want to learn how to get to the border of my knowledge, you, you to the border of where I've been. You go there, and then you can deter uh, again. But now you're starting from somewhere else, mm-hmm. and that makes the, and then you can uh, slowly build your knowledge about the environment, or slowly visit the environment because you are not being uh, having to pay the price of starting from always the same set of states when a random walk, which is really slow for you to move. The a very simple example that I had it's a workshop a workshop paper that we wrote back in 2016 uh, is that imagine that you just want to walk down a line, okay? And the states that you have you ha- you're going to represent your states by the binary encoding of their numbers. So state one, for example, is going to be zero 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 one. State two is going to be zero zero one zero. Uh, state three is going to be zero zero one zero zero, and if you do that, uh, and you just start from the the state number one, let's say, uh, you are going to go a lot to state two, state three, state four, right? Because a random walk moves at a square root number of time steps and expectation from its start state, so it's going to be very close to the origin, which means that you are going to flip those first bits on your representation a lot. Oh, I see the mm-hmm. first bit flipping all the time, and and so on. Uh, at the moment that uh, you, at the moment that you that you that you say, okay, but I want to learn an option out of that, and which is what I call an eigen option. What these these methods try to do is that they try to learn the thing that you know you can do, but it's very difficult for you to do. It means that maybe it's flipping the fourth bit because you haven't you have you have flipped it once or twice, but you haven't flipped it constantly. So now you learn an option that says flip the fourth bit, right? Uh, so now if you're going to do a random walk again, because we are just doing random walks, uh, every now and then you might sample that option, which says flip the fourth bit. So now you're not starting from the start state anymore. You're starting from the the, the state 16 or, or 18. Now I, I'm just 
16, I guess. Uh, state 16. And then if you want to flip the, the state, the fifth bit, which is the state 32, you're already halfway there, right? You don't have to start from the start state and do 32 right, right actions, let's put it this way. You, you just take one action that takes you halfway through there, and then you, you, you keep going. And we could show that, I mean, this is a cartoonish depiction of this, but th this idea is very powerful, and it does allow us to, to go rounds and rounds uh, uh, on the environment while the random walk is still struggling to get past the first couple of those states. And it's exactly this notion of, I want to learn, th I want to, learn to do things that I know I can do, but it's difficult. And the representation is capturing this. And the fact that we don't have the whole graph is exactly what's giving us to, uh, this, this information. So in the past, we did this with options. When I was trying to learn these options online, I also realized that we could do this with counts uh, because the representation, the success representation was implicitly encoding uh, state visitation counts. So we actually had a paper doing that as well. So, but it's, I would say, all oh, it stems from the same, very same nature of the problem. And it's this idea of the representation is guiding you because you are learning and you exactly don't have uh, information about the whole environment. Very cool. Okay, thanks for explaining that for us. And can you uh, tell us what do you mean by successor representation briefly? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the success representation is this idea that it's relatively old for machine learning standards. It's from 1993 when Peter Dayan introduced it. And it was this notion that I'm not going to look at states that when, when you when you think about how you represent a state, uh, 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 a state, you don't want to think about the state just in terms of where it is in the space, like in Euclidean terms. But you also want to represent a state compared to the states that you can get that you can. You also want to represent that state as as a function of the states that you can get to from that state. What are the successor states? So the the example is that imagine that you are behind a wall right? The state that it's exactly opposite to you on the other side of the, the wall, it's very far from you because you have to go around the wall. But if you just look at the, the Euclidean distance, arguably these states are similar. And Peter Dayan had this insight of saying, that, no, no, let's look at what the successor st uh, states are. So given that I'm in a current state, what are the discounted number of states? That, what are, and I'm going to just look at the policy that I'm following. What is the expectation that I? What is the expected number of times I'm going to visit each state of this in my trajectory? And this this success representation gives you this notion of the dynamics of the environment. And again, without thinking about the reward, and it has all these connections to neuroscience. Like there is, there are a couple of papers now suggesting that the hippocampus actually encodes something related, similar to the success representation. Uh, and I like to think about it as a credit assignment uh, object that if I know where the rewards are in the environment, because I know exactly what the next states are, the dynamics of the environment, I can easily assign credit because I know, oh, given that the reward is here and this is how I'm going to visit states in the future, uh, I, I now have value functions. So it's a super uh, powerful object. Uh, we have been using it for discovery options, for exploration. Uh, people at DeepMind, for example, Andrea Barreto and others have been doing this for transfer. Uh, but it's this notion of just knowing what what the future holds, in a sense, and anticipating that. And so, if I understood you right, it's not a um, it's not a pure representation of the transition function, but it's conditioned on on the agent's policy, on some kind of policy. Exactly, exactly. So, the actually, if if you want to be very precise, what you're going to do is that you're just going to the success representation is you can think about it nothing more as just learning 
how to maximize a reward, let's say. So you can think about doing temporal difference learning or something like that. But instead of actually observing the reward, you're going to get a reward of one when you visit a state. So you're going to have one success representation, if you will. So the success representation is always with respect to two states, right? Uh, but given a current state, you basically, every time that you visit state, let's say two, you get a reward of one. Uh, and then you learn a success representation for that state. And then you do that for state three and four. So basically, you, and then you are going to have a vector at the end, which is for uh, the given a state, you have the vector for our states, and it's conditionalist policy. It's literally just a value function, but instead of a, of the reward, you actually have a cumulant, which is the state visitation. Okay, and another phrase that came up here is covering options. Can you help us understand uh, that that phrase as well, uh, Marlos? Yes, yes, that's that's a a really neat idea that came out of uh, George Darwin's group. Uh, Eugene and I was the grad student who who proposed it. He was the first author. And when I was finishing my PhD, one of the problems that I have with the with this concept of eigenoptions was that I was learning too many options because I was looking at the eigenvectors of the of the graph Laplace, and I had as many eigenvectors as I had states. And it was not clear to me how I could like how many options do I want? Do I want ten? Do I want fifteen? I could I could do the empirical analysis, but I I, I didn't I, I was not able to develop the theory at the time for that. And then Yuji and I came along, and they had this very cute idea, which is this notion of which is what they call the covering options, which was wait no if if you if you have the eigenvector the <clears throat> the first eigenvector, and what the eigenvector is giving you is this notion of connectivity, you just need to connect the two states that you would get from this eigenvector, like the, the, the one that that, that, <clears throat> that this eigenvector is showing you like how distant different states are, and you just connect the two furthest, furthest apart states that you have. What you get by doing that is that you could very well be reducing the diameter of the graph. By reducing the diameter of the graph, you're making the environment more connected. And if you do this enough times, you you're going to get to to, redu- to improve exploration. The idea of covering options was discovering options that would connect these two states that were further apart. And the pretty thing about it is that it allows you to, to just answer, answer the question, how many eigenvectors do I need? One, because the top one is the one that giving you this notion of distance. And so you, Janai, did this. And, and then when I saw this, I was very excited. I was like, oh, this is really cool because it actually answers one of the questions that I was thinking about. So I reached out to him and we work together to extend uh, this notion of covering options to bigger domains in a more scalable way, using also the expertise that I had about how to 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 scale these things up. And eventually, we wrote this deep covering options paper that builds on this idea of again trying to find the sequence of actions that allow you to better connect the environment. Awesome. Okay. Now, so how do we? Um how can we compare these types of approaches to maybe how humans uh, might think of exploration? Uh, like I'm imagining if you ask a kid who's playing Atari, um, you know, can you try something new? They might respond with something a little bit more semantic. Like, you know, I'm going to make the ship go to somewhere where it hasn't been before. Okay. Or I'm going to shoot a type of enemy that I haven't shot before. My sense is that they would describe things in, in, in terms of concepts that they parsed out like ship and shot and enemy and, um, which I think basic RL wouldn't have access to those, those distilled concepts. I wonder if, uh, it was any of your work in representations related to this idea of, 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 of these distilling these concepts in a semantic way, or do you think we might at some point need a semantic layer 
to explore in the same way that a that a, that a child might might do? Yeah, I think that's that's a good question. I, I, I maybe to address your first question about how these exploration methods relate to these notions. I think that they relate very little. Uh, there is definitely a notion of I want to be to places that I've never been before, uh, and, but I don't think that. I think that oftentimes when, you're, when people are thinking about exploration, this is what I try to do in my work that was a little bit different in a sense. People often think about only exploration and the interplay that representation has on that, right? Uh, but I think that, and of course now this is changing a lot, but um, I think that when we, we go to think about these notions of, in a sense, semantics, right? There are two things there that are important. One is that we have to acknowledge that the kids that we are talking about here lives in a world and this kid has a lot of experience outside this this game that they are playing this is actually something that pisses me off a little bit when i read in papers saying that oh atari our deep rl agents take uh, 30 days to learn how to play a game uh, uh like of, of gameplay while humans learn how to play a new game in two minutes no they don't because if i put my newborn daughter to play this game she's not going to play it after two minutes she actually needs years of 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 experience to be able to just learn how to do this. So I think that there is a lot going on there. And it's a lot about trying to abstract concepts that we learn elsewhere, right? Uh, the abstraction of a, a ship, for example, it's useful not because it's the only place that it shows up is a, is a game, but it, it shows up all, all everywhere else. And oftentimes if you, I actually, I would like to see this, this study, like just go to a, a kindergarten today and show a screenshot of Atari games and ask, oh, what are those things? And I bet that kids do not even, cannot even label this. Oh, this is clearly a ship or an alien. It's, just like, <laughs> it's so extraterrestrial for them, right? So we come up with these abstractions and they are obviously useful, uh, but it's expecting a lot from the agents that we have right now to do this because they don't have all the rich experience that we have elsewhere in the world. Uh, you control a submarine. Uh, in Sequest, for example, an Atari game, you control a submarine and you should shoot fish. Like, what? Uh, but yeah, we have this notion that we shoot incoming objects and then that's what you're going to do. So there is this notion of trying to anthropomorphize a lot the AI. Uh, I think it's important to be able to, in a sense, understand what the AI, the AI is doing in terms of explainability and, rel and, and, and reliability. But it's it's a complicated discussion. Uh, and then it starts... I think that a lot of these things matter a lot, like because it starts to touch upon the notion of models, for example. Do we want to model? We probably want to be model-based when we want to do exploration in these very complex environments. But it's definitely, I don't think it's something like, oh, I want this to be baked in, because there's a lot of social constructs. Uh, and words are just words, right? Like labeling something, and I don't know, an outlet, it's just a label. Uh, if in Portuguese I'm going to call it a tomada, and it's it's the same thing. But now if we can ground this on the agent experience, I think that that's a much more meaningful question. Let's say that you have a, a robot, and the robot says, "I don't know what it's called, but I know that if I approach that thing and I plug my my and I plug in there, my po power level goes up." And then suddenly, now you have a more grounded notion of, oh, this is this is how I can call this. And by doing this, now I see a completely different outlet, but I can say, oh, wait, this is also the same thing because the outcome is the same. And, and then we start to be able to label things. But I just expect that AI is going to randomly pick up labels that we as humans defined seems, I think it's, it's in a sense, not even useful unless we want to spend hundreds of man hours labeling things and expecting the AI to do this, and still it's going to struggle to generalize because 
it's just labels. They, it, it, it's not uh, grounded on its experience in a sense. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. So let's move on to uh, the Loon project and your work on that. So I, I got to say, I really enjoyed your, uh, your presentation on, uh, on the Loon work at the University of Alberta AI seminar series. And we'll include a link to that in our episode page. And I encourage uh, listeners to definitely check that out. Um, and I was, I was really excited to read this paper because it, sh- it showed, uh, you know, reinforcement learning succeeding in a actually, actually useful real world task, uh, outside of simulation and, and doing a great job. There's a ton going on in this paper, but could you start out maybe giving us a, a general overview of, of what the goal here was and, and, and an overview of the, of the solution that you, you and your team came up with? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I was very excited about that paper when I joined, I joined Bray and, Pretty much for the first year, that's what I spent most of my time working on when I saw the opportunity of working on that project because I thought it was really exciting. And in a sense, it was the goal. One of the things that was exciting to me was exactly this uh, this opportunity to to actually deploy reinforcement learning in the real world and, and, and test our algorithms and see how far we could go. Uh, and what we were trying to do actually was that we partnered with Loom, which was this uh, other bat in Alphabet. Uh, and what Loon was trying to do, from my perspective as a scientist, uh, it was that they wanted to provide internet to places that were hard to get. So the problem is that, that once, you, once you think about how we get internet, we oftentimes get antennas in, the, in, in our cities. And the antennas have a range of, I don't know, five kilometers or so. So you build a, a big antenna, and then you can serve a, a, a a circle of radius or a sphere of radius five kilometers, and that's really good if you think about. I know you're in the in a middle in, in a big city because you're serving a lot of people. The problem, though, is that a lot of times it's very there are places that are very scarcely populated, and sometimes it's even hard to get to these places to build antennas. Let's say I don't know uh, tribes in the middle of the Amazon forest. Uh, so how do you provide internet to those people? And then these loon folks had this idea of saying that well, what if we had a very, very big antenna, let's say 50 kilometers tall antenna. Of course, you're not going to build an antenna that is 50 kilometers tall, but then they had this idea of what if we put a balloon up there and the balloon is going to operate as an antenna and because it's going to be so much uh, higher than, than you would get, it's going to serve a much bigger region and then it makes sense that we can actually provide internet to these people. This was their idea as a company, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, or one of their ideas. And then... What 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 you have to do is that if you if you start from this premise and you want a balloon to be there, the balloon needs to be stationary above a region to to serve the internet. The problem is that of course the, there are winds and the balloons uh, are going to be blown from from where they they want to be all the time. So in a sense, the balloon cannot just stay there and we leave it there. It's 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 over. Uh, the balloon needs to to navigate to make sure that it's always going back to that position. So it's the um, riding the winds, if you will. These balloons they have only the ability to they they are not uh, propelled, uh, so they they only have the ability to go up or down. They are a fixed uh, fixed volume balloon, uh, and they in a sense they work very similar to hot air balloons or submarine. Uh, so they they work. Their, their intuition is the same as hot air balloons, but they work very similarly to uh, submarines, which is that you have a fixed volume. So now if you want to go up in the stratosphere, uh, what you need to do is that you need to reduce your density. So what do you do to reduce your density is that, well, with the same volume, you pump air out of the balloon. So now the, the volume is going to be, the, the density is going to be lower, and then you go up. Uh, and if you want to go down, you just pump air inside, and then you, you sink the balloon. And by just being able to pump air 
up and down, you're able to like pump air in and out, you're able to go up and down. And by going up and down, luckily, I guess, the stratosphere has winds going all sorts of directions. So basically, you can now try to go up or down to go to the altitude where you have a wind blowing in the right direction. And what we were trying to do was to have an agent that would learn how to navigate those winds in a way that it was going to go up or down and ride the right winds to be always surfing the same region. And this is what this is what we did at the end, and we deployed. So I don't know uh, much about a stratosphere at all, but is it always possible to find a way to get back? Like, does some of them ever just, is it just sometimes just completely impossible to go the other way and, and the balloon, regardless of the, how great the controller is, the balloon is forced to drift away outside of the zone? Is that Does that happen? Yes, absolutely. So sometimes you, you, all the winds are blowing on one single direction, and then there's nothing you can do. The balloon is going to be blown away. We didn't go there, but when but loon was not serving a region at the time with only one balloon right they had multiple balloons except one of the reasons mm. because of that as well but yes it happens we could see this happen with our controllers as well but then there's also a meaningful question here that's just like well so even though you're going to be blown away how can you minimize how far you're going to to be blown away mm-hmm. or how can you or how can you make sure that you're blown away in a region that you can eventually come back right and that's one of the things that are really difficult about this problem because the time horizon we are talking here is about days. Sometimes you're going to be blown away for a whole day and or two or three, and eventually, like now, I want to go back, right? Mm-hmm. And somehow you still need to plan. Uh, there are some interesting things about the stratosphere that I'm not going to pretend that I I can confidently say things about them. But for example, this is much more this is much easier to be done in the equatorial region, the, the equator than it is to be done in the poles, exactly because of the patterns of winds that we have, for example. Uh, and a lot of the the things that we did with Loon was between the, the, the tropics that are somehow close to the, the, the equator. Uh, but even in our paper, uh, one of the things that we did was to estimate how what was the maximum you could do, if you will, how, what's the best you could do with our controller and at the time, if I if the numbers are right, it was about seventy percent because other thirty percent of the time it didn't matter what you you wanted to do. Uh, you there were no winds that would allow you to do this. This was only simulation. This was not in the in the in the real world. But this shows that yes, sometimes it does happen. And then you said that sometimes you have to um, consider uh, sequences of days. How do you break down the time time steps? What is it? What is the step size? Um, what is the time scale we're, we're, for the actions here? Yeah, so so the time scale for so what we did was that uh, we broke it down in a way that the balloon would take uh, an action every three minutes, uh, and the gamma that we were using the discount factor it was point nine nine three. So it gave us uh, if you if you want to think about the effective horizon of point nine nine three, it was around. 200-ish steps in the future. Mm -hmm. So we had almost a day that we could, at any time step, we're looking ahead, in a sense, almost a day in the future. Uh, And not only that, then depending on how we incorporate our features and how we learn, actually what we observe is that our balloons were were being effective in, in very long time scales. Okay, so there's there's a number of names on this paper. Um, can you tell us about the the structure of the team and how the team uh, broke out the, the the work and and the roles and and what was your your role uh, in this team? Yeah, it's uh, like 
this is definitely the biggest project that I've worked in my life. Uh, and this was reflected on the on the the, the, the authors in the paper, right? Um, well, the, the, so let, let let me start saying that we can we can break down this. At, uh, so I, what I'm trying to say here is that well, one thing that we could break this down by sure is between the brain collaborators and the loom collaborators, right? Uh, we worked very closely uh, all the process. So they were running experiments of the parallel agents, and and we we were discussing how uh, how to do the experiments in the real world and the deployment. So it was uh, a work that we did really together. They were amazing collaborators, the Loom collaborators. But you can see that there was definitely this notion of there, there was a group of people that had very deep expertise on the balloons and stratosphere and how these things work while we had expertise on reinforcement learning. But uh, at the same time that there is a bunch of names in the paper, this was a relatively small team for the size of the, the effort. And for and what I mean by that is that naturally what ended up happening is that a lot of us touched in pretty much all the components of the solution. So I, I worked developing the algorithm, uh, coming up with the, like, what what we actually deployed so how we developed the features which was something that was related to a paper that i wrote a while ago uh how uh we how we do exploration uh what algorithms do we use how do we train those things so this was one thing that uh that i did but there was also i mean listing all the things that i did it's kind of silly because we we worked on this fairly heavily on all sorts of fronts but one thing that i spent a lot of time doing was thinking about the empirical evaluation and actually dealing with some of the challenges that come up when we are working off with a real product, which is this notion that the environment, like the, the things are moving, right? Uh, like you have a product, they had a, they, they had a balloon that was flying the stratosphere. They wanted to make it better. It's not that everyone was freezing the whole company for us so we could have a stable environment. So sometimes things would change. Uh, sometimes the balloons would change. Uh, and the simulator would change some parameters and so on and a lot of the i spent a lot of time also trying to to give to have sanity on this like how can we make sure that we are doing meaningful we are making meaningful progress on this ever-changing task and what was changed uh, how did it change what was the impact in performance uh and understanding this understanding the simulator how the simulator worked how we could actually get this uh the, the this meaningful data and what the, the simulator was telling us and how this was working uh analyzing the data writing the paper so i i yeah in a sense it's it's silly because i'm enumerating all the things that needs to be done to, to, to happen in the paper but maybe what i'm trying to say is that this was a truly collaborative effort uh it was very exciting because i got to work together with a lot of people on a project and it was big so yeah, we touched, a lot of us touched in a lot of pieces of, the, of that. So in the very beginning, when you heard about this project, did you think that, oh yeah, this is going to work out great? Or or were you, were you, do you have any doubts? Or And, and, and were you surprised? Uh, the final performance seemed actually really good. So w- did that surprise you when you got to that point? How, how, did, your, how did the feeling uh, change throughout the project? Well, so when I first heard about it, I was excited because when I was excited about Loom, even before I thought, oh, this is a, this is a cool idea. And Back when, even when I was doing my job interviews, people would ask, oh, what do you want to do for your research? And I would say that, well, one of the things that I want to do is that I want to make sure that I develop algorithms that are going to allow us to actually deploy algorithms in the, in the RL agents in the real world. 
So it just seemed like an amazing opportunity. I just joined this company and then there is this project that was actually starting. And I was like, well, I, I, I could do that. Uh, it, could, it, it, it doesn't have to only be a promise. Uh, so I was excited about that. Uh, at first, uh, I, I think that at first I was very excited. I was very hopeful and I said, this is going to work great. Of course, I was naive. I didn't know how difficult the problem was. Uh, the, but we, we managed to get some good successes at the end, uh, at the beginning. And I think that this gave us hope. So in July, so in July of 2019, uh, we had already deployed the first balloon and the project I started at, at praying in March. So if you like in a couple of months, we had already deployed the first balloon. It was not the final solution that we came up with, but I think that we had some early wins that kept us hopeful of the, the progress. Uh, of the project uh i was definitely very surprised and scared when the, the first time was we deployed the balloon so, oh my god we're, we're doing this uh of course the 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 low engineers they know they knew much better than we did as as researchers all the safety protocols that they have put in place to make sure that uh nothing crazy was going to happen uh and a lot of the work that we did was actually learning with them like oh can a balloon hit each other and they're like no they're riding the winds how how could they hit each other like they're literally at the same speed uh, unless mm. you just manage to sink one balloon that goes up while the other one is the same anyway uh so yeah they can't collide on the on the space there's nothing there so they're not cannot collide with other things uh and the safety layers they are not going to burst and all those things so we i was excited and honestly a little bit scary the first time that the balloon was deployed because i had no idea like how the safety layers that there was uh with time it's just like yeah uh, i'm comfortable i i i know how to assign these controllers to these balloons in the real world and how how we can do these experiments uh so yeah maybe i'm just circling around your question but but it should say that although this this project seemed challenging it was very challenging in terms of dealing with the infrastructure because it's a it's a real product infrastructure, real world infrastructure. Uh, the iteration cycle is very slow, right? Because we are like it's not a simulator that you get the result in a couple of uh, hours or even days. Uh, so there was these challenges, but I think that the early successes that we had uh, and the excitement of everyone just made it very obvious that we were going to keep working on this. And when it and it's one of those things, right? Like and then you worked for so long and you know so much the problem that once the final result gets in. And it looks like, yes, we knew this was going to be the case. And then the, the surprise was gone a couple of months ago because now it's you, you already know what to expect. But I was still very happy and anxious after we processed the data. Like I was anxious while we were processing the data when we spent a month flying balloons in the, in the equator just to make sure that our models was right. And it was very exciting to see that, yes, we have statistical confidence. We are better and it works pretty well. I bet. That must have been a great moment for the whole team. And And... and and I guess another thing that I I, I was not think I have to confess I was not thinking about it at the beginning, but it was excited that it was actually being used by people, right? Like they were flying balloons uh, in Kenya with our agent, and people were getting internet because we developed something that was allowing them to have I don't know a couple of hours of uh, extra hours of internet every day, uh, and it was very rewarding in a sense. <laughs> Awesome. So, um, can you tell us a bit, a bit more specifics, like about the how the observation and action spaces work? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the the action space uh, it's abstracted in a way that the balloon just goes up, down, or stays. So every three minutes, the balloon gets an gets an action that says go up 
go down and stay. And what this means is that the balloon is going to go up for three minutes or go down for three minutes or stay where it is until uh, another three minutes is done. Of course, behind behind the curtains, there is a lot of low-level controlling going on, right? Of like, oh, pump air into this or, or open the valve. But from our perspective at the end, for the perspective of the agent at least, the action was up, down, and stay. Uh, and the, action, the, the observation space was something that we iterated a couple of times. But the in a high level, what the what the agent had access to was the information about the winds uh, above it and below it. So you can think about this as a, a wind column going all over the the stratosphere that the balloon could navigate, and we would call and then we we discretize that in what we call pressure levels, uh, and basically this was the information about the winds in each one of those. Uh, and by that information, it means the direction of the wind, the angle that the wind was blowing. And, and the, the third variable that was quite uh, important and different from what people are used to, which is uh, uncertainty about those winds. Because the balloon is flying in, because the balloon knows exactly what the winds are, where the balloon is, right? right? But the balloon doesn't know what the winds look like five kilometers above it. So what the agent did is that we were using this uh, prediction that comes from, from uh, other uh, other uh, other sources about what the winds were going to look like. Uh, we had the, and then we had the a Gaussian process that was kind of fusing those predictions to what the observations that we had, uh, and giving us a lower granularity of the winds and say that look, given that the prediction says that the wind is going to blow I don't know, north at 50 kilometers, and but you are just I don't know 500 meters uh, above this this pressure level and we're seeing something completely different uh we are going to fuse this and this is what we think the wind looked like uh and if we think that and this is the uncertainty that we have so basically we were characterizing the stratosphere the winds in the stratosphere based on this on this notion of distance uh, like on velocity uh angle and the uncertainty that we had about those and not only that, we also had uh, then what we would call the global state variables of the balloon, right? Like the amount of power that the balloon had, the amount of uh, the time of day, uh, the, where the station is. So this is what the, the balloon was observing, which was basically the winds and and its, and this, its status. You mentioned that uh, you used some insights from your shallow RL paper in designing this controller. Do you want to briefly mention um, the relationship uh, there? Yeah, so back in 2016, we were trying to develop features, linear features, that capture the properties of the networks in DeepRL. So basically, we were asking the question of, well, we have these DeepRL agents, and they are doing amazingly well on Atari. What are the features, what are the inductive bias that this network have that actually allow these agents to do so well? And we came up with a couple of them. Uh, one of them that was really important was this notion of this invariance, like this uh, this this transition invariance that you get from convolutional networks, right? That you can apply the same filter in all sorts of places on the image. Uh, and then you also have this relationship between like, oh, there are two filters that one one is above the other. So we know that, and if this happens in different parts of the screens, it's still the same relationship. Uh, and this was one of the things that, one of the tricks that I learned fairly early on, that if we have a representation that is centered, let's say that it's agent-centric, and everything is really is relative to the agent, uh, this makes a lot of difference because it it requires the agent can generalize much better because it doesn't have to learn the same thing. I know all sorts of places that it observes. It can every time that something is above the agent, well, it's the same input. So 
one of the, uh, so this was one of the tricks that we used when we were designing these inputs for the agent and, and when we were flying the balloons, which is that our features are relative to the agent. So actually when the balloon goes up, the whole feature vector in a sense shifts with the balloon to make sure that we always have the notion of what are the winds above me and not what are the winds at the 15 kilometer altitude, but like what are the winds above the balloon? And, and this was a huge boost in performance and it was very important on how the network learned to do this. And it was, yeah, it, it's quite neat. I, I noticed that uh, relative observation issue when I was doing the Palmerman 2018 Europe's competition as well, uh, having that relative observation. So, so w- when when you talk about the uh, observation of the winds above and below the balloon, is that coming from offboard um, offboard data? Like it, it's not is it, it's not from sensors on the balloon, is it? Uh, how does the balloon know what's happening above and below? So the balloon doesn't know what's happening above and below. The balloon knows exactly what's happening where it is. And then above and below, it's both uh, the predictions that we have and observations from other balloons. So there's definitely communication with the balloon uh, about mm. what are the surrounding winds. And so you mentioned how important uh, uncertainty is here. Uh, was that surprising to you? Well, it's not a surprise in the sense that it seems fairly obvious that we should the agent should be able to reason about how confident it is of, uh, of its surroundings and what it believes to be the state of the world, right? Uh, so in that context, it was not surprising, but it was what was interesting was that this is not common practice in the field. So it was interesting to see how important that ended up being for us. Uh, and in a sense, it's I, I want to say that it's one of the interesting contributions of the paper as well mm-hmm. in terms of algorithmic side. And it still needs to be explored. Like, how far can we go uh, with this notion of incorporating a certain thing to the agent uh, and the agent, how much, how well the agent can interact, can reason about that or learn a representation that takes the uncertainty into consideration, if you will. Can you talk about the decision to use model-free RL here? Like, could uh, model-based planning or model predictive control approaches work here, or would they discard it uh, right away? Uh, I find it hard to say that could they work, and like I will never answer no because uh, like it's it's always a matter of making them work, right? Like eventually. But I think that one of the really challenging things is that we cannot model the stratosphere, right? Like we cannot model the weather, so. Although there there could be some components of model based here, if you want to be completely like if you really want to do planning, like we had even in this baselines, we have search based methods and planning methods that rely on a model of the, the the weather, and they work relatively well in the simulation, but they would they never worked in practice because like the model the mismatch between what the model is and what the winds actually are in the stratosphere is so big that it's hopeless. So. In the paper, we had this search-based controller that it, we used as a baseline, almost as an oracle in the simulation. But then when we went to the real world, it's just like, yeah, it's never going to work. So maybe there is a way, but there is definitely the problem of model mismatch and the inability that we have, we as humans have of modeling the stratosphere and the winds at the level of granularity that we needed for that project. So... Um... I heard that the Loom project itself was canceled, and I'm I'm sure that had nothing to do with the controller because your controller seemed like it worked really well, um, which is and and I felt really sad when I heard the news, but I guess it's glad that we also glad that we uh, benefited from from seeing how how this would work. Is it? Do you think it might continue in the future, or do you think that's a that's a permanent? Um, it's it's closed for now. I don't know. Uh, I 
I don't necessarily have much more insight than any of the people who read the, the blog posts have about that because uh, I was actually, once the, with, the, the, we deployed it and then we had the paper accept, I, I ended up leaving uh, Brian and going to DeepMind. So it was fairly close to the time that the announcement came out as well. Uh, I think that definitely, I mean, I, I want to say definitely not with respect to the RL controller. The RL controller was working great. It seems that it was much more a business decision than mm-hmm. anything else. And yeah, I don't know. I I was very happy to work with them. I think it's a great uh, project and a great. It was a it was a great experience. Uh, but there is more to those things than necessarily just the the scientific endeavor, right? There is a business plan, mm-hmm. and it's way it's way above my pay grade, if you will, to 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 understand what's going on or or even understand like how they ended up making this decision and, and the clients. We were working with a fairly small team on just trying to get the best controller. Uh, and and that, and that was my role as a scientist in a sense. I meant to ask you um, about exploration. Um, I think the exploration strategy was quite simple, but did that uh, strategy take some some iterations to, to settle on or, or was it very clear to you from early on that that would be the right way to do uh, exploration? Yeah, that, that, the, the exploration approach was fairly simple, but at the same time it was rewarding from a personal perspective because we didn't iterate o- over that, but the solution that we ended up having was to have a balloon saying that, look, I want to go to that altitude and stay there for a while. And if you if you think about how we often do exploration, it's with random walks. And that would mean I just want to go up or down for three minutes. And that was never going to work, right? So the fact that we ended up doing this temporally extended exploration, which ties back to my work all the way back to my PhD, which is I was advocating for this notion, let's use options to do this temporally extended exploration because it's much better than the different, was really rewarding. I was happy with that. Uh, and it worked really well. We And honestly, we never revisited that solution. It's, it's one of the things that it would be interesting to do. If uh, if this project continued, if you if you had a chance to work on it more, would the, would you have future work in mind? Can you say anything about that, do you, or do you feel it was like a completely wrapped up? Oh no, absolutely. I think that there is a lot of future work that could be done, uh, like both to improve the the, the, the controller, but also in terms of scientific terms, like under further understanding this role of uncertainty in the inputs would be very interesting. This notion of of exploration and, and understanding the, the if there were better exploration strategies would also be something interesting. One thing that we were also discussing was that, well, right now we were just training on simulation deploying the real world, but naturally we were collecting more data in the real world. Could we use that data to make our controller better and fine-tune it to actually the balloon that we were flying? Because each balloon is a little bit different. The, mm. Each balloon is a little bit older. The battery is a little bit uh, stronger or weaker. Uh, and all those things were questions that uh, that are fairly interesting, and yeah, they're just interesting scientific questions. Back to the general general issues outside of Loon, but besides your own work, are there things uh, other things happening in, in reinforcement learning these days that that you're you're personally excited about? Yeah, I think that we're getting to we're in a very exciting time in the research. I think that uh, some of the things that I'm excited about is the one of the things is model-based RL the, uh, and how we are seeing some of the first big successes in model-based RL and just like these large domains. Mu0 is one example, but there are others. So like, how do we actually learn models that allow us to plan in these environments? I think that this is a, a very promising research area and we're just scratching the surface. What this model should look like, uh, what, what should we be modeling? This is one of the things that I'm excited about. Tied to that, I'm very curious, excited, interested, but also a little bit scared and trying to catch up with the literature. 
on this notion how we incorporate causality into reinforcement learning. Uh, because it seems that if we go back to this notion of generalization and this notion of we want invariance across observations, it seems that we want to be able to to extract the causal factors in the environment that are causing this these changes. And this is something that I'm very excited about. Uh, and there are some people doing research on this. Uh, I'm curious to see what's what's going to come out of that. Uh, and overall, I guess representation learning. Uh, I'm curious to see. Uh, we are seeing some efforts now on how we start to think about learning representations for reinforcement learning and not just using representations learned from, I don't know, a random network game back prop, but how can we actually think about the reinforcement learning problem and what would be useful representations for that? I think that these are some of the, the, the things that I'm, I'm excited about and I want to see how, 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 how much progress we can, we can make. And then looking forward, um, what, what do you see yourself working on uh, in the future? Do you expect to continue working on the, the themes you've touched on um, here and taking them further? So I am still very curious and excited about this notion of having option, learning options iteratively that become more and more complex, present more and more complex behavior. Uh, and this notion of lifelong learning, if you will, that it's one of the, or continual learning that people use. Uh, I think that this is really interesting, this notion of how can we learn? Maybe I'm first going to just learn some very basic skills, but this is going to allow me to bootstrap to see things that I couldn't before. And then I can learn even more complex skills that allow me to bootstrap even more and until we get to very complex behavior. This is something that I'm still curious about. Uh, I am very curious about generalization in RL. It's something that I might be doing uh, in the future, like more. Uh, I am I am also doing some more careful, very careful work about representation learning and understanding what this, what are the properties of representations in RL that we want, the representation we want our RL agents to have and to learn. Uh, so all these are things that are related to what I did in the past and I'm excited about. But there are also some things that, yeah, one other thing that I didn't, we didn't discuss today, but that I'm also which is kind of new for me. I've been doing this in the past since I joined Brain, which is this collaboration with Nicola Lehu and, and some other researchers. It's about going to the basics of policy gradient methods and really understanding what uh, what they are doing and how they work and challenging some common beliefs. This is also something that I, I want to continue doing. I think that we, we have learned a lot in the past couple of years and, and we can now start to, to get some good results out of that as well. So yeah, I think that these are but overall, I would say that I'm very interested in this in this notion of abstraction. How do we learn abstractions in space, which means representation of abstractions in uh, in the action space and the state space? So state space would be generalization, and the action space would be options. Uh, and how we can we can use that to do better credit assignment and, and exploration and things like that. So, Dr. Marlos Machado, this has been a super enjoyable conversation for uh, for me. Not, not definitely not the shortest interview we've ever done, but I know uh, I've I've learned a ton um, from from hearing from you, and, our, and I'm sure our audience has too. Thank you so much for for sharing your time and your insight with uh, with Talk RL. Thank you very much for having me. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at talkrlpodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. 
you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. 